And that rather different musical intro tells you that you're listening to a slightly different episode of the Power of Three podcast, which will focus exclusively today on the new Who concept of the so-called Dr. Light episode. The Power of Three is where three lifelong Doctor Who fans, and I'll introduce them to you shortly, discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise a trio of products related to our favourite show. Now that might be televised adventures, both classic and recent. It could be spin-off novels, books about the show, biographies, magazines, DVD releases, basically anything that gives us the excuse to talk about Doctor Who. Follow us on Twitter at Power3Pod. That's three as a number, Power3Pod. We also have a Facebook page uh, where you can leave comments, suggestions, and, of course, listening to episodes of the podcast. So before we continue, let me introduce you to my two co-conspirators. First, David Steele. Good morning, good afternoon. Um, I'm David, and I've only got 17 DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> and from sunny East Kilbride, we have Kenny Smith. Hello, I'm Kenny Smith, and I'm your Cassandra for the day, fresh from my Botox and fillers for work. We really don't want to go into all that, do we? <laughs> Amazing. He's, an, he's, that, a, he's a changed man. Well, thank goodness you're in a different location from me, and I can only hear you. Yes. Kenny Kardashian. That's because I'm the devastatingly young-looking one. <laughs> moisturise me, moisturise me. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, right. heavens. Right. We, we anyway, are three adults. Let's talk about adults. Objects. Moving swiftly on, shall we? Why don't we talk about Love and Monsters? I was going to ask you first, before we go into the individual episodes, uh, what's your view of the so-called Dr. Light episodes? Love them. Absolutely yeah. love them. I think they're so cleverly done. It's a very, very smart way of being able to produce a hell of a lot of Doctor Who in a very short space of time. The fact that you're able to do two episodes at once and where you only need the lead actor for a day or lead actors for a day or two and you can get get those extra results. So yes, I love them. Yeah, absolutely. Strong agree. It's um, it's a really sort of interesting way of, of telling you know a different Doctor Who story. They, they remind me, I don't know if either of you have ever read, there's a quite a long-running comic called Astro City, which deals with sort of, tells sort of um, superhero sort of stories, but often not from the perspective of the superhero, quite often from the, the perspective of the man in the street. And I think the Dr. Light episodes, they, they've always put me in mind of that, you yeah. know, when um, the main Never character, if you like, is, is, is peripheral to what's going on, or sorry, you know, the Doctor's peripheral to what's actually going on, but still, you know, obviously influences the story quite a lot. And yet they were used regularly, or at least three times, by Russell T. Davis. We didn't see them in the Moffat era, is that right? Well, we, right, sort yeah. of half in, we saw half of um, A Good Man Goes to War. Matt Smith didn't appear for quite a while into that. Yeah. So it was probably, that's sort of the closest that we got in, in Stephen's tenure. Okay, I was just going to say, it's the sort of thing that, um, because, because they've been shown as working so well, it's the sort of thing that makes me think, that makes me sort of question when, you know, sometimes that production teams can't get a series completed, you know, within a certain deadline or within a certain time frame. You sort of think they could do a whole series of Doctor Light episodes, you know, yeah. book the Doctor for two days and film everything else. It could work quite well. Lights! I am your salvation. The sound of the universe. What does it mean? His name is the Doctor. Doctor what? Find me that girl! Here we 
we are complete strangers and I'm flashing you my knickers. One step closer to catching the doctor. Don't I know you? So to introduce our first episode, I'm going to ask uh, the fragrant, beautified and botoxed Kenny Smith to read us out what uh, TARDISFANDOM.com says about the first episode. Yes, we're talking Love and Monsters, the first Doctor Who story to feature an ampersand in its title on screen, in which an ordinary man becomes obsessed with the 10th Doctor and Rose Tyler and uncovers a world of living nightmares. From a production point of view, Love and Monsters included a monster created by a child, nine-year-old William Grantham, for a Blue Peter competition. It was the first story in the programme's history written specifically to be recorded at the same time as another story, a process called double banking. By minimising the appearances of the Doctor and his companion, the production team recorded 14 episodes in the same time that it took to make 13. Russell T Davis was sufficiently pleased with the results that the concept, dubbed a Doctor Light or Companion Light episode, would become a regular feature of each subsequent season. Because of this episode's Doctor Light nature, it notably became the first and currently only full episode to showcase the Doctor's adventures from the perspective of their bystanders, who are usually overlooked in the most stories. Tardisode 10, the prologue to Love and Monsters, shows a secretary falling victim to the main enemy of this episode. Excellent. Now, let me pick you up on something you just said at the very start there. Only a journalist would pick up that this is the first Doctor Who episode title to have an ampersand in it. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Um, no, Notice that you picked uh, up on the fact that I picked up on it, so guilty a, for you. What am I missing? That is, what's that? <laughs> what am I missing here? <laughs> uh, well, Given that I'm not a journalist. Well, the ampersand, you know the... Yeah, uh-huh, yes. I know what, yeah, I know what an ampersand is. Yeah. Which was invented, oh. allegedly, by the slave uh, secretary to the uh, well-known ancient Roman statesman Cicero. Oh, really? Who invented uh, the slave that is invented a form of shorthand and the ampersand is reputed, reputed to come from, from him. Yeah, really. I did not but, know that. What I was going to say was right. I was reading Neil Perriman's uh, Wife in Space book as I was going through the, the, the Troughton episodes uh, a, a year or so back. And he pointed out that Fury from the Deep was the only Troughton adventure that didn't have the in it. And it put me in mind, I mean, Doctor Who fans can be obsessive with this sort of thing, quite right as well. But my favourite um, observation on, on titles came from Stephen Moffat, uh, where he pointed out that Let's Kill Hitler is the first ever episode to feature the word let's. Mm. It's also the first episode to feature the word kill. Yep, and it's also the first episode to feature the word Hitler, and an exclamation point. I think is that right as well? Yes, you could be right. Is that right? No other that exclamation point. Yes, no, there we are. Earthshot yeah. could have done with an exclamation point. Oh yeah, so good. Megalos <laughs> top ten, yeah. top ten Doctor Who stories that could have benefited from an explanation, an exclamation That's next point. Episode, Dave. Yeah, yeah, we'll work on that list. <laughs> on to Love and Monsters. Um, this was. Um, one of my favourites from the second series after the, after it came back. Um, I remember it basically because my younger son had been born round about that time. And I remember going in to visit my wife and baby son in hospital. 
and uh, of course full of the joys of new fatherhood but couldn't help telling her you've got to go and watch this Doctor Who episode when you get home <laughs> and, and we did and she actually did like it I just think there's a couple of notable things in this episode and it's the reason why I want to talk about it first of all Mark Warren who plays Elton now as soon as I saw him in a previous thing called uh, State of Play yes, uh-huh. uh, which was yep. then made into a Hollywood movie as well and Mark Warren was in State of Play and he just owned every single scene he was in and the reason I wanted to talk about Love and Monsters was because, you know how fans have these conversations about who would make a great Doctor? Yeah. I loved the idea of Mark Warren as the Doctor. I just thought he would have been brilliant because he's so weird looking. Yeah. And his delivery is so brilliant. He's a yep. great actor. He's very funny, but he can do serious. And all the way through this episode, I just think he is superb. And it's one of Russell T. Davis's best attempts at writing a script. I just think that the humour, um, the sarcasm, uh, the scary bits are there as well. I, I just think, and I know it is hated by a lot of fans. I, I, yeah. I don't understand. <clears throat> yeah, we'll, 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 talk, we can talk, we'll talk about that, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, you know, the, the whole thing about kids, uh, you know, inventing a monster and sending it into, into Blue Peter and then it being made into a, a monster has a history uh, going way back. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought it was terrific that they did this for for the for the new Who. Do we call it new Who? By the way, I got into trouble yeah. in the last episode for no, calling the universe. It's called new, new Who. New is yeah. fine. Yeah, I use that it's term. Okay, right, okay. We make our own. We make our own rules here. But but not Whovians, is that right? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down, Kenny. Put the gun down, Kenny. So, so much for making our own rules. The right. thing is because because Kenny's had Botox now, you can't actually see that he's annoyed. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I loved, I mean, Russell T. Davis had a habit, didn't he, of, uh, not a habit, but but one of his kind of guides, his rules was uh, to look at the Doctor from an ordinary person's perspective. You know, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he... That's the whole core to his success. Yeah. Really. And yeah. It was, yeah, grounding it, it. And you had to do that when the show came back, because it wasn't the old show, it wasn't the 1980s anymore. It, it had to do something different and more modern. And it succeeded throughout his tenure I think but it succeeds particularly in this there is a, a a beautiful line towards the end of it which I will now play where Elton at the end of the adventure talks in very kind of somber serious tones mm-hmm. about the impact of the doctor on ordinary people's lives and I think it's one of the best bit of writing that uh, Russell T Davis ever came up with you know Stephen King said once he said salvation and damnation are the same thing. And I never knew what he meant. But I do now. Because the doctor might be wonderful, but thinking back, I was having such a special time, just for a bit. I had this nice little gang and they were destroyed. It's not his fault. Maybe that's what happens if you touch the doctor even for a second. I keep thinking of Rose and Jackie and how much longer before they pay the price. Right, what's your thoughts on Love and Monsters? Well, for me, Love and Monsters is the most Russell T. Davis bit of writing that feels closer to his non-Doctor Who work than anything else up to this point. It's got his trademark, your characters who who you like. There's the tragedy in there. There's just larger-than-life characters. There's some 
dodgy jokes. Um, and to me, it's it's just the most. I mean, it's you can feel you can tell that this is definitely the guy who wrote Queer as Folk. If you were to watch mm. it without actually having seen the credits, it's got that feel to it. That's just that unique Russell T Davis feel, which yeah. is it's just it's got the human touch that you can engage with. It's light. It's dark. It's funny. It's got brilliant characters. I mean, we get Jackie Tyler's given a real chance to shine. Absolutely. And I really cannot disagree with what you said about Mark Warren, Tom. I think he's absolutely fantastic in this. You get that devastating loss that he's had as a child. Um, the fact that he's almost you know struggling to engage with people. And then when he finds the, the, the Linda crew, that he finds that he's found a place where he belongs with like-minded people. And, and they've got that one thing that unites them, which obviously is Russell T doing his look at Doctor Who fandom. I, I just think it's wonderful, and it is my favourite episode of that season. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's cracking. I mean, the um the the Linda thing is really, I think, is is one of the nicest bits about it, which makes the whole thing when it starts to fall apart really quite tragic. It's it's interesting. I think we all we all know. I think we've all known a Doctor Who fan that's quite that's a bit like the character that Peter K plays, you know, like Victor, <laughs> who, yeah, who takes it, people. Who takes it very, very, very seriously and is very, you know, has very defined idea. Probably the sort of fan that doesn't like Love and Monsters very much because it's so different yes, from, other, it, from other it, stories. And you know? because it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, I think that exactly. is a major crime so. in the eyes of some Doctor Who fans. Yeah, yeah, and have, I think um, there was there was a feature. I think it was I think it was Digital Spy a couple of years ago did a they ranked every single modern Doctor Who story. And they had loving monsters in the bottom five, and I just stopped reading. I was like, no, if you don't, if you're if you're still writing this story off after so long. When I when I watched it in sort of prep, it was the first time I'd watched it for quite a long time, and I was struck. I mean, I loved it at the time um, because it was so different, and it shows the 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 versatility of Doctor Who as a you know as a form as a storytelling sort of format sort of thing. But it just struck me just how good it was, and I, you know, it's almost like I'd forgotten how good it was. I kind of expected not to to like it as much as I remembered, but um. You know, as Ken said, like you know, it gives Camille Kajuri so much to do, and yeah, which is really, really nice. I mean, that the scene when El- Elton's sort of trying to, you know, he's got his plan, step one, step two, and he's infiltrating, and he meets her in the laundrette, <laughs> and she preempts everything that, he, ah, that he's trying to do. Yeah. You know, here we are, Elton. You know, I've only just met you, and I'm flashing you me knickers. She's yeah. hilarious. I love Camille, um, and it's it's a really, really good story for it. It builds Jackie up quite a lot again before you know. She was she she featured quite strongly in, in Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. When I was uh, working in London for a while, and uh, Carol and my wife used to come down with the kids um, occasionally and spend weekends and sometimes holidays uh, in London. Um, and I was at work, and Carolyn took her uh, older boy Jack um, into a shop somewhere to buy some lunch, and there was Camille. Um, wow! Just in a shop, cool. John Lewis or something, and of course Jack had been watching Doctor Who and he immediately recognised it. And uh, Carol told me afterwards that she just could not have been nicer. She was just awesome. lovely with Jack and just yeah, speaking yeah. to him and joking with him. And she gave her all gave him all of her time, and she just came across as just a lovely person. So I love it when when people that we like on screen actually do turn out. Not to be sods in real life. Yes, yes, absolutely, definitely. Fantastic. One of my, the, uh, I mean, it's a great cast, and you look through it. I mean, there's obviously just a short appearance from the great Bella Emberg. Yep, um, of course, yeah. 
We've got um, Catherine Michael, Drysdale, who's fantastic as Bliss. Michael um, from Alan Partridge. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, I was up to Catherine Drysdale, I'm a big fan of because I love two pints of lager and a pack of crisps. And it of course you did. <laughs> so we are to tell. And of course, she's just done a big finish as well, which is rather fad, but I won't say too I'd, much I'd, for those. I'd forgotten about her character being called Bliss, because that's obviously a name that's that's now familiar to yes, big finish listeners. Swear. Yeah. Um, but Shirley Henderson is fabulous. Know, heartbreaking. Like you just, absolute yeah. heartbreaking. You just think she is so lovely. She's so well written and she just brings such warmth and heart. And you can see why Elton is, you know, taking a real shine to her. And you just think that the fact that they are building up a relationship without them even realising it Mm. Uh, until that moment arrives and he thinks actually Jackie you're not the person I want to spend time with it's fantastic I, I've of course yet, what happens I've, to her is so sad yeah. I've yet to see anything uh, with Shirley Henderson in it that I didn't love I mean there, there's just something about that actor that just mesmerises me I mean whether That's it's brilliant. whether it's Bob Servant <clears throat> or Harry Potter yeah. Um, you know, it is or Doctor Who. She is just fantastic. Everything that she's ever been in. Bridget Jones. Yeah, of course. Um, Filth. She was. Did you see Filth? Devon Welsh won a couple of years yes. ago. She's hilarious in that. Absolutely hilarious. Best thing in it. Well, the first half of that film was great, but anyway, we're not here to talk about. Yes. No. Was <laughs> um, it? Listen but... out for a new Irvin Welsh movie podcast. Yes, coming soon. Um, but Peter Kay, we have to talk about Peter Kay. What do you guys yes. think of his performance? It gets it splits people right down the middle. Victor, look at your hands. Look at the rest of me. You've doubled with aliens. Now meet the genuine article. Oh my god. Thing. A thing? This thing is my true form. Better than that crude pink shit you call a body. You're some sort of absorbathon. An absorberling. An absorberoff. Yes, I like that. Well, see, I think you have to come at this from the perspective we've just gone through a list of people who are largely known for comic actors, or as being comic actors. Mm. There's, there's a reason why Rusty Davis cast these people in this episode. It's a comedy episode. Um, it's not to be taken too seriously. I mean, of course, it fits in with continuity and everything, but it's a it's a light-hearted, funny, heartwarming episode. It's not it's not Journey's End, you know. It's not yeah. Doomsday or whatever. In that context, it's perfectly understandable that they cast a comedian, and I, I just think he's brilliant. I I, I just love him. I yeah, I mean, uh, perfect yeah. for the role. I mean, I was that was that was something I sort of anticipated. I anticipated Peter Kay annoying me, but he's it's it's pitched perfectly with the tone of the whole thing. Because like he, he, I think Peter Kay's quite a divisive sort of figure. He's one of these you either love him or hate him, and I kind of um I kind of mm, fall between. But you know, he's he's excellent in this, and I get he's. I think he must have been briefed about the sort of you know person that he was he was evoking. You know, yes. and he's so good. He's so good as the monster. He's hilarious once he's actually. You know, and he uses his own accent. Uh, during the Edinburgh Festival, I went along to see ASD Improv, which is Any Suggestions Doctor Improv, who were doing an improvised Doctor Who show every night for four weeks. And they were superb. But one of the episodes they did was called The Absorbaloff in the White House, uh, which basically acted as a sequel to Love and Monsters. And it was great fun, really, really 
entertaining. It was, you know, the suggestion for the title came from somebody in the audience. Um, the other episode that I saw improvised was The Circus of Geese. So yes, people have got a very twisted sense of humour and warped imagination. And this one served as a, obviously completely unofficial uh, sequel to it, but it was very well done. And you can tell that there's a lot of love out there for this episode, despite what uh, a lot of people seem to say online. They're very vocal in their dislike of it. But I think hope and hope too that there's a greater majority who actually do enjoy it the way that we do. Yep. It also contains probably the best line of Doctor Who in the whole of its history, he said, without any suggestion of hyperbole. Right. Uh, as well as the one that is the most true and speaks the most truth, and it is this. You can't beat a bit of yellow. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and ELO were my first musical love. They were the first right. band that I really got into, and I, you know, so that spoke to me in a personal way. That's rather nice to have that, but it yeah. combines two loves. All we need now is to, to throw in Doctor Who, the Genesis episode, and I'm not talking about of the Daleks. Well, indeed, wouldn't that be awesome? No, it wouldn't, of course. <laughs> right. Doctor Who travels to LA in 1965 and plays bass in the recording of the Bird's Mr. Tambourine Man. That would do. Hugh Capaldi. I would, have, I would have that. Yeah, he could. That, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do that? Enough of this nonsense. We're on to our second episode. Here is a taster of the episode we're about to discuss. Don't blink. Blink and you're dead. Don't turn your back. Don't look away. And don't blink. Good luck. Blink um, is about, uh, this is once again from uh, TARDISFANDOM.COM. In an abandoned house, the weeping angels wait. The only hope to stop them is a young woman named Sally Sparrow and her friend Larry Nightingale. The only catch, the weeping angels can move in the blink of an eye to defeat the ruthless enemy with only a half of a conversation from the 10th Doctor to help. The one rule is this, don't turn your back, don't look away and don't blink. Writer Stephen Moffat had intended to write a two-parter earlier in the series but was too busy writing um, and executive producing Jekyll. Believing he had messed everything up, Moffat offered to throw himself uh, onto the grenade of the unpopular episode, referring to the Doctor-like concept. And that refers, of course, gentlemen, back to what we're saying about Love and Monsters. In a 2008 interview, he admitted that he had only just started realising that Blink was, in fact, a really great episode. Because of its late submission, Blink was the quickest piece of writing Moffat had ever done, having gone straight from the second draft with no notes to the script and tone meetings before going into production 10 days later. The script writing process took just uh, such little time to produce that Moffat claimed that Blink was such a tiniest sliver of his writing career that he couldn't remember making it. It has since received mass critical praise. In Doctor Who magazine 474, Blink was rated number two by fans among the very best television stories in Doctor Who's then 50-year history. And in case you're wondering, and I think I'm right, gentlemen, the one that was voted number one was The Caves of Adrazani. That's correct, Tom. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah I think... Um, old topper. Yep, yeah, I think they did four four variant covers for that issue, I remember, if I remember rightly. So, um, Blink is really the story which establishes, for good or bad, a lot of what became sort of trademark for what Stephen Moffat would do in Doctor Who when he became the showrunner. 
casts a bit of a long shadow, and I think it's a story now which, um, if you when you watch it, it's very difficult to remember exactly how you felt at the time when you saw it in 2007 compared to everything that's sort of come since, because obviously the angels have come back, the the timey wimey, non-linear, non-linear storytelling sort of habit became much more entrenched and used more often. Um, there's a, a strong, flighty um, female character who is slightly unbelievable as a real person, but is nevertheless very charismatic and, and enjoyable to watch. Um, it cements the idea of, um, which be- again became a bit of a preoccupation for the next few years, of regular day-to-day objects becoming scary. Um, obviously, as I said, the Weeping Angels came back quite a few times. Um, very Probably the most successful um, monster of the modern era, I think. Um, the story has, the, what be, again, the, what became sort of, was already established really with um, The Empty Child, but became that real Stephen Moffat trademark of, you know, clockwork plotting of everything being influenced by everything else and fitting neatly back into the box. And we should also point out that, of course, the reason he was easy, able to write it so quickly was that he was reusing a story originally from, I think, the, the first Doctor Who yearbook that was published when the series, the series came back. So yep. again, Stephen, you know, Mr. Moffat, for all, for all his for all his strengths, would quite often reuse sort of familiar elements, and it was it's interesting that this is a story having already been published in another form. Um, I think I'm saying was a, 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 a was along with Human Nature was one of the first that was adapted very closely from um from something that had already been published. Also th- throw in Jubilee and Dalek. Yeah, but I, th- I think um Jub- Jubilee's the actual story is quite different. The idea of one single Dalek being locked up is there, yeah, but I think, you know, it's, it, I think the human, human nature and, and Blink are much sort of closer adaptations of the, of the source. Yeah. And it's just so well done, isn't it? It's an incredible piece of drama. It's got so much heart to it. Um, a character who, I mean, instantly you do um, take a shine to Sally. Uh, Kevin yeah. Mulligan is superb, and you can see why she's gone on to have such a good career. Since yeah, then, there was a there was a kind of a general outcry from fans at the time, saying let's have Kerry Mulligan as a, a permanent um, companion at the thing, wasn't it? I mean, she yeah. was just fantastic in this. I love old things. They make me feel sad. What's good about sad? It's happy for deep people. The weeping angel. Not that in my garden. Smooth. What? Since yesterday. I'm sure of it. It's closer. It's got closer to the house. I think, yeah, she works, so, she works so well as a one-off because she is so good. I think, you know, it's one of these things, if they had brought her back, it would have made what happened with her in Blink a little bit less special. Uh, I want to ask you about something you, you said, but let me make an observation that Stephen Moffat likes the timey-wimey stuff. The very first Doctor Who thing I ever read by him was uh, continuity errors in, yes, in yes. Decalogue 3. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Um, yeah. Which is just fantastic. And he used that concept of the Doctor intervening in somebody's past to make them a better person. He used that in A Christmas Carol, his first Christmas special uh, mm. after, after, after taking over. And, and I, I think that's fantastic. I, I said in an earlier episode, I think, that the concept of time travel and what you can do with it and the paradoxes it creates hasn't been used, or at least wasn't used quite enough, I think, in the classic series 
arguably it's been overdone in the in the new series. I think it has, yeah, yeah. But but Davey, you, you, I mean, you reading between the lines of of your kind of summary of the episode, mm. are you a fan of this episode? Yeah, I, th- I still think it's absolutely excellent because my. My, I remember very well that you know the night um the night it was on. Jojo, my pal Jojo was around. We were watching it, and we were we were just like Whoa, screaming at the telly at various points. It's it's a master. You know the the, the plotting is so good and the structure of it's so well done. That it holds the audience in. Um, it's you know you're you're with Sally as she figures out each little part of it. Um, you're sort of you're saying you know you're 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 wanting the the scene when um her and is it Ollie or Law? It's Lawrence, isn't it? Larry. Yes, Larry. When they're, when they're when they're sort of they when they figure out what's been going on and they they have that sort of virtual conversation with the doctor over the screen, it's it's fantastic. It's the the problem. I if I have a problem with it, it's 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 legacy rather than in its own self. In its own self, it's wonderful and and it's great. And I I think if if maybe if you know if you want to turn left and into a parallel universe where um where Stephen didn't write another Doctor Who story, he would be absolutely venerated as one of the greats because it, it's a, it's an excellent piece of television. It's, you know, to use a term I, I use quite a lot, it's virtually flawless in its own terms. But I think quite often Stephen would react to stuff in his stories which was perceived as popular and would kind of do it again. So you liked it when we did this, now we're going to do that, now we're going to... And I, I think, like... I kind of prefer Doctor Who when it doesn't use an awful lot of timey wimey, and I felt at, at points, especially you know when when Matt was involved, that it it got a little overcomplicated at times, and the companions were all you know were all sort of revealed to to have like you know complex hidden lives and to be parts of parts of the Doctor's life that were you know the whole thing with Clara being seeded through his his life and Amy and River being related and all that. It was it kind of got. It was all. It all got a bit convoluted, and um, that was the beef. That, if I have a beef, that's the wrong way of putting it. But it's it's the legacy that the Blink sort of created. But it, as itself, it's wonderful. It's the uh, whole notion of hidden messages and DVDs and things like that. It's it's great. I mean, we've all yeah. come across <clears throat> Easter eggs when we didn't expect them. And again, it's yep. tapping, tapping into the zeitgeist as the the growth of the DVD market and Doctor Who DVDs with their fantastic yeah. hidden we. Yeah. Uh, extras here and there, which and are great. The thing that I was going to say was the angels themselves. We haven't actually discussed them. It's just such a, a simple concept, and it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's, it is. it's something. Yeah. It doesn't. It just shows you don't need to have a huge, massive budget. I mean, you could do we angel on a budget of less than a hundred quid. It's just the yeah. fact to have something that move, you look away and it's moved. And they're it's they're so effective. You. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people. Were, I've, I know a lot of people have been quite critical of how the, the Weeping Angels were used in subsequent stories. I don't have any sort of criticisms at all because, I mean, you could say that if if they had remained a one-off monster, they'd be up there with like the giant robot or you know or the Morbius monster as just really strong, iconic sort of you know. And people would be thoughts. demanding their return, though. That's yeah, the thing. Absolutely. But I mean, I, some people. I've, I've I've seen a lot of people that have, that have sort of said that they felt they were kind of lessened each time they came back. But you know. The the whole Statue of Liberty as an angel I thought was genius, and that's the that's the that's the sort of big brave you know sort of like reckless sort of um, ideas that Doctor Who does really well. And you know I mean I don't, the I thought Amy and Rory's final story was was fantastic because it made really good use of the angels. I th- I absolutely agree about the strength of Angels in Manhattan. I think that was a far stronger angel story than you know the, the ones that appeared in, in Matt Smith's first season. Disagree. Uh, really? Do you prefer 
Uh, oh, I think they're fantastic, but that's a, that's another story for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Stephen Moffat himself claims that the monster was inspired by his sighting of an actual weeping angel or in a graveyard or in a churchyard, an angel with its hands over its face. Mm-hmm. And he has since said that um, he can't remember where it was exactly, but if anyone can take a photograph, if they ever see a, an angel with its hands over its face, they should um, let him know. Because maybe the implication is that it has now moved. Right. <laughs> this is this is this is a very dark observation that I'm going to make. But there are quite a few statues like that in the the big cemetery in Paisley. But yeah. the la- the last thing that I really wanted to sort of say about Blink um, was that. There is, you know, I, I have a sister, we're very, very, very close and all that. But if I was crashing at my sister's house, there is no way that I would be walking about in the middle of the night with no pants on. <laughs> Good point, well made. That was just weird. I was just like, what? You know, that, that slight inappropriateness kind of troubled me. So, I mean, it's a good gag, but it's like, mm, dearie me. <laughs> I'd like to add in conclusion is that Blink is the only episode of 21st century Doctor Who that I've thought that was so good, I'm going to watch it straight away again after broadcast. That's how much I love Blink. Yeah, I can understand that, actually. I think I, I, I may have done the same, actually. I do that with most stories, to be honest. But I know what you mean. It was Blink. Do you know what? Blink Blink was one that, that I, I didn't watch too often because it was so good I wanted to savour it. And, you know, and everyone knows I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of what Moffat did, but, you know, I'll always sort of say that our story is excellent. It, it is absolutely perfect of what it sets out to do. Well, here is a taster of our third and final Doctor Light episode. Found a body, sir. The Doctor is dead. How could anything be worse than this? What? What did they find? Oh, my God. The stars are going out. Who are you? How is that you? Turn around! Show me your face! I've been pulled across from a different universe because every single universe is in danger. supposed to do. Powering up. None of this was meant to happen. You're going to die. Dave, tell us what TARDISFandom.com says about Turn Left. Okay, so on an alien planet, Donna meets a fortune teller who launches her into a world based on one question. What would happen if Donna never met the 10th Doctor? Without the Doctor, the whole world is in ruin and a mysterious blonde tries to warn Donna of the oncoming darkness. Now a simple refugee, Donna is the only one who can undo the damage. But how? It was the first Doctor Light episode to focus on the main companion without the Doctor and marked the first major reappearance of Rose Tyler. It also showed a parallel world, showing what would have happened had Donna not met the Doctor in The Runaway Bride. In that world, without Donna to convince him to leave during his encounter with the Empress of the Ragnos, the Doctor ended up drowning in the resulting flood under the Thames. Because of this... Many of the Doctor's companions and friends would have died, and without the Doctor around to stop an overwhelming threat on the horizon, all things would eventually be destroyed. Much of Series 3 and 4's events set in present-day Earth would still occur, but would have cost more lives without the Doctor's intervention. The Master would not have been present in his Harold Saxon persona, as the Doctor would not have been alive to go to the year 100 trillion to allow him to escape the end of the universe. Indeed, the year 100 trillion itself would never occur, as the stars go out in 2009. The main villains in this episode were agents of the Tricksters Brigade, a group who fed off altering timelines. They are also the only enemy to have been fought in Doctor Who and its spin-off shows, Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures. Okay, Kenny, tell us us what you think about Turn Left. Turn Left is 
quite possibly one of Russell T's greatest Doctor Who episodes. I watched it again last night. I'd already watched it earlier in the week. Just to make sure, am I thinking this? And yes, it is brilliant. In many ways, it is the most fan-pleasing story that he's done. As It's almost like a piece of fan fiction at times when you're dropping back to look at previous events. I mean, yes, we had a wee bit of that in Love and Monsters with the, the Sycorax spaceship and such like in the Slovene. But here we're talking coal-scale looks at episodes, including The Runaway Brides, The Sontaran, Stratagem, all these ones, the fact that things are dropping in here, there and everywhere. And it's just so... The effects of it are absolutely horrendous. I, I like to think of Russell T as being a happy, jolly writer, but very much the opposite in this case. When you're talking about the, the creation of internment camps, um effects of almost like a, the effects of a nuclear strike in London. It's just so grim. And I mean, you just look at um, the way the story starts off and you've got Donna's all happy um, talking about spending her extra wages and then as progresses, you know, even just the look of her, she's not wearing as much makeup and just everybody becomes tired and worn down. And then the thing that absolutely got me was the, the line from her mum when Donna says, I must be such a disappointment to you. And then her mum agrees. And you just think, that's yeah. the most horrible, it is. downbeat. But, I mean, and she King. was. She's wonderful the way she plays her, but she's such yeah. a horrible character. Yeah. I, I just find it, it's, when it's considering it's so, you, know, you think Russell T stories are always the bouncy, cheery ones. Um, it, but this yeah, one just it's, shows it's you. About as, it's about as bleak as I ever got, really, isn't it? Definitely. In, in a form of symmetry, it's the very opposite of Love and Monsters. In terms of Love and Monsters, it was very light-hearted, although with some dark undertones, but it was essentially yeah. a comedy episode. Yep. This is the very opposite. This is as dark as Doctor Who gets. We've got so many you know, characters, you think, in any other Doctor Who. We've got Mr. Colasanto, who's all cheery and, hey, and uh, you know, joining in with sing-songs. I mean, Bernard Cribbins is outstanding in this episode. Um, yep. But you've got a character like um, Rocco Colasanto, who's he doesn't get that many lines, but you take a real shine to him straight away as warm, friendly Italian. And then when he's been taken away and he's you know, putting all the grins on for Don and such, like then when you see him sitting in the back of the truck, so well played, he's just absolutely devastated and who knows what the future holds in this post-apocalyptic Britain. Awful. There, there, there is a theme in a lot of Russell D. Davis's writing, which actually I, I don't agree with and I, I think is overdone. Russell seems to believe that Britain society, British society, is always a hair's breadth away from descending into a fascist Utah um, and and to you know to Nazism. And I and I, I totally reject that idea. I think as a as a dramatic hook, it's fine, but I, I think it recurs so often in his writing, I think he probably actually thinks that, and that's slightly did irritating. You, did you watch Years and Years when it was on then, Tommy? I deliberately avoided it because of the reason really? it's given. Right, right, got you. Yeah, <laughs> interesting, because obviously a lot a lot of people said when, when Years and Years was on, especially around about, you know, episodes you know three, four sort of thing, you know, they were comparing it to Turn Left. Yeah, right. Turn Left yeah. turned up by 10. Uh, Dave, what's your view on uh, Turn Left? Um, it's excellent. It's absolutely, you know, when I was watching it last night in, in prep, um, it's pure comic books. It really is. It's, um, it's, I don't know if you, you, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Ken, but Marvel used to publish a series called What If? 
I'm aware of it, would, but I've never read them. Yeah. So it's soon to be a television series. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, aye. Um, and they would basically sort of take an idea like, um, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, or what if Gwen Stacy hadn't died, or what if Wolverine had killed the Hulk? Um, they, they, what if Phoenix take, hadn't been killed? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I've got that one. Um, they they take they take the basic sort of idea of, of a real sort of turning point of, of of a major story and flip it and sort of say, right, what if? You know, what if the Avengers lost Atlantis attacks or if the X-Men lost Inferno, you know, that sort of thing. And this is this is Doctor Who's, you know, only real attempt to think at doing it. And it and it's brilliant. I mean, Catherine carries it really well. You remember there was so much resistance when she was coming Absolutely. back as a companion and she and she's and she's you know, she carries it, you know, she's hilarious, but at the same time, you know, really, really she brings a real sort of poignancy to it later on. It's interesting, isn't it, that Catherine Tate, and you're right, <clears throat> there was a lot of fan resistance to her when it was announced she was going to be the companion for the fourth season. Mm-hmm. And yet she did such an amazing job that mm-hmm. it turned out she was actually a brilliant actor. Yeah, um, She is now, I think, widely regarded in fandom as one of the best companions. Yeah. Without a doubt. It's, and yeah, the way it's, she goes from absolute highs to absolute lows... And just the expressions in her face. Yes, you'll hear the voices and various of her characters coming out from the Catherine Tate show, but that's part of who she is. Um, yeah. But this, the, the, the darker moments when she plays them, particularly when she realises she's going to die and steps out in front of the car. Oh, yeah. Just the look on her face is just devastating. She's tremendous. I mean, it, it's, you know, when she, I mean, she, I think a lot of people forget she, she started off as an actor, I believe, didn't she? And then, you yes. know, Moved into comedy as a vehicle to get herself some work, you know, to to write her own her own stuff. No, it's 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 one of these. It's so good, like the scene when um when Cribbins and Donna are sort of looking up at the sky and you see the stars blinking out, you know, before. And this is this brings us obviously to our point we haven't really talked about is um what did we think about Rose coming back? Well, I thought it was great. I, th- I mean, how often do you get an old companion coming back to meet a new one? Yes, we had it, you know, with Sarah Jane coming back in series two. But obviously there was a, a huge gap there and that had a point to prove later in the season. But yeah. to have a more recent companion coming back like that was very, very unusual. Yeah. Obviously we never had that in the classic series. Yeah, because I, I, remember, I remember at the time being a bit sort of, oh God, I wish they would just get over Rose Bloom and Tyler. <laughs> you know, it felt like she was almost fetishised sometimes because she she hung over Martha the whole time Martha was in series three. But again, it comes back to what I was saying about comic books. It's It's such a comic book sort of, you can imagine someone like Roy Thomas or Chris Claremont sort of, you know, turning this out in the X-Men or the Avengers or something. The way that, you know, a character who hasn't been seen for a while is thought lost, returns, leading to a big crossover for all the characters from the different series. It's basically, this story is Avengers Endgame before Avengers Endgame. <laughs> it really is. I, I, I thought it was great seeing Rose again. Um, she plays a really, you know, critical uh, role in the next yeah. two episodes. In yeah. fact, I always, you know, we talk about two-parters. I always regard the end of season four as a three-parter. Yeah. Uh, Tap left, uh, Stolen Earth, Journey's End as as a trilogy rather than a two-parter. I think it's a very, very good end to the season. It's a great trilogy and it's building up to a a finale. I mean, you could imagine that the the end of the season was a, a sort of Russell T's farewell in a way and then came back for the last hurrah with the specials. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so well done. It's just the structure is there, building towards something. And you can tell it's been planned from the word go. It's not been a last minute, oh, what are we going to do? Kind of feel to it. It's been very yeah. much thought out and prepared yeah. in advance. Yeah, the, the momentum that sort of builds during the Stolen Earth 
and le- leading into the you know the final one is, is terrific. And as I said, it's it, it does does the you know the, the comic book superhero sort of thing of teaming up all the different characters from all the different series. The the Daleks and the in the Torchwood Hub, tremendous. Sarah Jane meeting Captain Jack. Captain Jack being reunited with Mickey. We were punching there in two thousand and eight. It was fantastic. Talking I don't of, think we realised uh, just how good it was at the time. I know. I know. There were yeah, too many people going, oh, I don't like it because there's blood. Oh, I don't like Donna. <laughs> Soulless fools. Um, <laughs> Talking of Sarah Jane, yeah. you two might be able to answer this. How did Sarah Jane get killed in the hospital that was transported to the moon? She suffocated from the lack of air. Yeah, that was it. I, I get that, but why Sarah Jane wasn't in that episode? Why well, was the she doc- in the hospital? The doctor, the doctor wasn't there. So Sarah Jane went doc- along to Sarah Jane went along and investigated because the doctor had died under under the Thames during oh, the, the runaway bride. Right, right. right. Okay. So yeah, it was. I, it I was, thought maybe I'd missed a reference to Sarah Jane in the actual no, episode Smith and No, it, it, it was just um, it was just a case of this is what ha- if the doctor wasn't there, this is this is what happened. Do you know, actually watching it again? It reminded me of a quite an early big finish story. I think is it what was it called, Kenny? The the one that Nicholas Courtney and David Warner did. Sympathy, uh, the sympathy for the devil. That's the one because there's a moment in that when the Brig talks about stuff that didn't happen because the Doctor wasn't there, you know, mm. because the, the conceit in that story is the Third Doctor didn't arrive when he was supposed to, which was the early seventies. So Earth faces all these invasions without the Doctor. So it was, it put me in mind of that. So it was quite interesting. I might give that one another listen. Well, it occurred to me that without the Third Doctor in the early nineteen seventies, there would have been a queue of invasion fleets waiting to yep. invade. <laughs> yep. No. Well, the brig would just nuke the lot of them, so that's oh, yeah, the, and much what, yeah. where Sympathy for the Devil picks up. Yeah. Right, that winds up our discussion on the three uh, Russell T. Davis era Doctor Light episodes. Obviously, the only question that is outstanding now, and the one that everyone listening to this podcast will be asking themselves, so we really do have to answer it, what is your favourite Yellow song? <laughs> oh, I'm on the spot. I think I think either living thing or can't get it out of my head. Good choices, Kenny. Yeah. I'm not such a huge yellow fan. I do enjoy listening to everyone's so a yellow fan. With, Come on, Ken. <laughs> I'll have to go with "Don't Bring Me Down" or "Mr. Blue Sky." Yeah, I would probably go with "Mr. Blue Sky" as well. How does that song end? <laughs> How does "Mr. Blue Sky" finish? I can't remember, folks. Maybe something will tell us. Remember to like us on Facebook and leave any comments or any requests for future uh, reviews and follow us on twitter at power of three pod that's three as a number power of three pod and remember to tune in next time right i think that's us finished for this particular episode um it's it's goodbye from me tom harris goodbye folks take care i'm, I'm off to put my my 17 dvds into alphabetical order i'm kenny smith and i'm going to go and inspect my botox <laughs> <laughs> And we'll leave you with the closing bars of an all-time classic. Not a Doctor Who episode, but a track by the wonderful Mr. Jeff Lynne.